production and distribution of City Club Forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Good afternoon and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Robin Minter Smyers, a partner at Thompson Hine and the president of the City Club's board of directors. I also am a proud City Club member. I am very pleased to introduce today's speaker, N. Scott Mamaday, the 2018 Annisfield Wolf Book Award winner for Lifetime Achievement. The Annisfield Wolf Book Awards were established in 1935 by Cleveland poet and philanthropist Edith Annisfield Wolf to recognize books that have made important contributions to our understanding of racism and bigotry and our appreciation of the rich diversity of human cultures. The Cleveland Foundation, the world's first community foundation, has administered the awards since 1963. And for the past few years, the City Club has been proud to partner with the foundation to provide a forum for winners of these distinguished awards. N. Scott Mamaday, a writer, teacher, artist, and storyteller, has devoted much of his life to safeguarding oral tradition and other aspects of Indian culture. He was born a Kiowa in Oklahoma and grew up in the Indian Southwest. He earned a doctorate at Stanford University, joined its faculty, and taught American literature widely, including in Moscow. An author of 13 books, including novels, poetry collections, literary criticism, and works on Native American culture, Mr. Mamaday won the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction in 1969 for House Made of Dawn, which is considered the first novel of the Native American Renaissance. He's received numerous awards for his work, including the Golden Plate Award for the American Academy of Achievement, an Academy of American Poets Prize, an award from the National Institutes of Arts and Letters, and Italy's highest literary award. He's a recipient of the Guggenheim Fellowship, as well as a fellowship for the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. He holds 12 honorary degrees from American colleges and universities. In 2007, President George W. Bush awarded Mr. Mamaday the National Medal of Arts. Ladies and gentlemen, members and friends of the City Club of Cleveland, please join me in welcoming the 2018 Annisfield Wolf Book Award winner for Lifetime Achievement, N. Scott Mamaday. Thank you very much. You can all hear me? Yes. All right. Well, it is uh, great to be with you. I'm delighted to, to uh, have lunch with you and uh, to speak to you this afternoon. <clears throat> I want to talk to you about who I am, first of all, uh, give you a little biographical information. I am a Kiowa. Uh, 
my father was a full blood Kiowa. Kiowas are uh, Plains people who reside now in southwestern Oklahoma. But some years ago, they were farther to the north, and they migrated down from the Yellowstone country and settled in the southern plains. <clears throat> they were a buffalo hunting people and a horse people. They acquired horses and uh, were said to be uh, among the great horsemen of the plains. Um, I have a distant relative who, uh, on one occasion, gave away 250 horses from his private herd. So they were rich in horses. And uh, there's a story, by the way, let me tell you, I'm a storyteller. Um, <clears throat> there was a man who owned a fine hunting horse. It was black and fast and afraid of nothing. When it was turned in the direction of an enemy or a or prey, it struck at full speed. The man need have no hand upon the rein. But you know that man was a he was a coward. And once during a charge, he turned that animal from its course. That that was a bad thing. The hunting horse died of shame. That's the shortest, I think, the shortest story in my collection called The Way to Rainy Mountain. But it tells volumes about the relationship between man and horse. Uh, that culture is sometimes called a horse culture, sometimes called the centaur culture. And uh, the man who told me that, an old Kiowa man who told me that story, cried when he was telling it. So the, the relationship between man and horse was a sacred thing. Well, the Kiowas didn't start on horseback, of course. They, they lived uh, in the Yellowstone region about uh, a thousand years ago, say. And for some reason, they came down out of the forests onto the Great Plains. And that was a revolution in the true sense. They had to change their way of life dramatically. They became a Sundance people. There were eight tribes on the Great Plains and they, were all, they all had possession of the Sundance. The Sundance was the greatest religious ceremony of the tribe. And the Kiowas um, lost their Sundance in 1887. The last Kiowa Sundance was held in 1887 at a time when the buffalo were becoming very scarce on the plains. And they had to have a buffalo bull as the sacrificial victim of the Sundance. So that was a sad time. They could find no buffalo, and uh, in 1887 they, they had uh, to buy, uh, a purchase a, a domestic animal from a herd which Charles Goodnight uh, had in Texas. And in 1890, there was a Sundance planned. They had no buffalo. They were going to use an old buffalo robe uh, to, to uh, suspend in the, in the dance lodge. But the soldiers at Fort Sill had been given orders to, to prevent the Sundance. So they came out and uh, that was the last, uh, the last of the Sundance. I have a foundation called the Buffalo Trust. And uh, it, is a, it is a foundation designed to help native peoples retain their cultural identity. And I'm working especially with children now um, 
the Buffalo Trust has been active, but now it is dormant because, uh, um, well, there was a death in the family and I had to let go of it for a time, but I'm trying to revive it. And uh, I want uh, I, one of the things that I dream about is bringing back to Sundance to the Kiowa people because I think spiritually it is, a, it is a great possession of the tribe and it defines them in important ways. So I'm working on that. Uh, the Buffalo Trust has also been active in Siberia and uh, in Alaska and in the southwestern United States. And uh, it is a worthy foundation and I hope to bring it back and do good things with it. You know, the, the uh, native peoples, the children are in crisis especially with uh, uh, infant mortality rate is, is very high. Um, the uh, uh, poverty is, is widespread. Uh, alcoholism is a terrible disease. And recently suicide, among young people especially. So something needs to be done about that and I hope to have a hand in, in uh, improving that situation. You must forgive me my voice today, which is very weak for some reason. Um, it's, it's not that I spoke last night and uh, exhausted my voice. Uh, it's something else, like a cold. <laughs> so forgive me. Um, a thousand years ago, Kiowas, as I say, came down upon the Great Plains and they encountered the Crow people Crows, uh, their reservation is, is uh, up on the Montana-Wyoming border. And the crows befriended the Kiowas and uh, gave them the Sundance, gave them what the, the most powerful medicine in the tribe, which is called Taime, and it is a fetish which is kept in a, in a blanket. Uh, and uh, it, it is extant. It's uh, still with us, and it has been for a long time now, and at the Sundance, the annual Sundance, the, the time a bundle was opened and the fetish inside was exposed. And that's the only time during the year that it was exposed. And uh, so we still have it. And that means we can, we can uh, bring back the Sundance with the original fetish in, 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 uh, on the scene in the lodge, the dance lodge. For some reason, the Kiowas migrated from the Yellowstone region down. They followed the rain shadow of the Rocky Mountains down across the western states into what is now southwestern Oklahoma. And they came voluntarily. They came uh, in pursuit of the sun. Other tribes, most of the other tribes in Oklahoma were relocated there, you know, forced to, to migrate to Oklahoma. Kiowas came of their own free will. So did the Comanches. The Comanches and the Kiowas have been also allied for, for a long time. They were the two dominant tribes on the southern plains. And for a hundred years, from about 1780 or so, they ruled the southern plains. It was their heyday, their great, uh, their great moment in history. When they were free, they had horses, they were um, free to roam over over a wide area of land, you know, on before there were horses, it took a man a, a, a long time to secure enough food to feed himself and his family. 
took a year maybe to, to hunt uh, for enough food and, and it was a struggle all the way. With the horse, the man was elevated to a height from which he could see across the, the wide landscape and he could cover enough distance in a day to secure enough food to feed himself and his family for a year. So the horse made an incredible difference to that culture. And uh, <clears throat> when I was 12 years old, I lived uh, uh, at the Pueblo of Jemez in New Mexico, which is one of, the, one of the Rio Grande Pueblos, and my parents gave me a horse. And uh, I got to know Therefore, the importance of the horse. I, I got to live uh, uh, in the way that some of my ancestors had lived, on horseback. I spent several years on the back of my horse, riding over that country, and it was a great, a great growing up thing for, for me. And I still dream of uh, Pecos, my horse. We rode the range together. Yeah. Wow. Who is that masked man? <laughs> so they came into the southern plains and uh, dominated that area of land for a hundred years. And then the culture fell. The buffalo were hunted to almost to extinction. The Sundance was prohibited by law as being an act of, of uh, bar barbarism. And... Uh, so the culture fell, and it was a, the, that was the end of the Plains culture, as it was known. It has survived. The Indian has a great capacity for survival, and uh, that's a good thing. Uh, more and more young people now are crossing the barrier between the reservation and the world beyond, the wider world. Many of them are going to college. Wasn't so in my day as a, as a boy. But things have changed and are changing. And uh, for the better, I think, there's some question about, you know, what, what does it mean to, to, uh, to step outside one's culture? And uh, how, what, happens to the, what happens to the culture? What happens to the, to the uh, adaptation necessary to cross that barrier? We still don't know about that. So there are good signs and there are bad signs. To have the culture fall is in general a bad thing. And uh, I, w my colleague uh, who is in the audience, Jacqueline Fear Siegel, and I are going, and my, and my uh, caretaker, Michael, are going to Carlisle, Pennsylvania from here. And at Carlisle, they are celebrating the 100th anniversary of the closing of the Carlisle Indian Industrial School, which was the prototype of the boarding school, that whole boarding school system. And that's an interesting story in itself, where, where culture is concerned. As children were taken off the reservation, children, mind you, some, some as young as four years old, were taken from the from the reservation, put on a train, which was a new monster to them and they didn't know what to make of it, transported across the country to Carlisle, Pennsylvania, and they were 
made to wear military uniforms. Their hair was cut, and long hair is sacred to the Indian. They were forbidden to speak their language. So the, the uh, transition was, was uh, severe and extreme. And of course, there was a great price to pay for that. The man who founded the Carlisle Indian School was a man named Richard Henry Pratt. And uh, he, was a, he had been a military man in the West. And he conceived the idea that oh, we, can, we, can, we can make the Indian a valuable citizen if we do it right, if we educate him in a certain way and put restraints upon him in other ways and so on. His motto was, kill the Indian and save the man. Think about that. Kill the Indian and save the man. Um, you know, it, 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 it's, it's, a, it's a negative concept in, in so many ways and, and uh, tells us a lot about that man. But he was successful in founding the school. And many people, hundreds, of, maybe thousands of children went to Carlisle in the course of its, of its uh, tenure. And uh, some of them benefited from the experience. Others were destroyed by that experience. So the, the history of the school is interesting. And we're going to go there and uh, meet some of the descendants of those children and talk about things and uh, smoke the pipe and dance a bit and feast a bit, maybe. So we're looking forward to that. Um, I had a kind of pan-Indian experience before I knew what that term meant as a child. I was born in Oklahoma, and my first home was a Kiowa home. And uh, it, we, we lived in great poverty. I wasn't aware of that at the time. Children deal with poverty better than adults do. But we had no running water, no plumbing, no electricity. And uh, it, was a, it, was a, it was a strange way of life to most of us. In this room, it would be strange. But uh, I, I felt good about being there. I was there only a short time. I was born during the Depression, and uh, my parents were looking for work. They found it in New Mexico uh, on the Navajo Reservation. And so we moved, when I was just an infant, we moved to uh, Shiprock, New Mexico, on the, re on the Navajo Reservation. And I spent several years there, and I came to love that landscape, which is immense and uh, desert-like, arboreal desert, cliffs and canyons, beautiful country. And I got an ear for the Navajo language. Uh, I don't speak it, but I can get along in it uh, for a short way. And I can pronounce it, which is a great achievement because Navajo is hard to pronounce. It has a voiceless L, for example, so you expel breath on both sides of the mouth. You know, todil chosha. It's one of my favorite words. Todil chosha means uh, dark water, whiskey. <laughs> Sometimes coffee. <you> know. <laughs> and uh, the word for the Coke machine is todil chosha bagan. 
soda pop its house. Love that concept, don't you? <laughs> and then, from, from uh, the Navajo Reservation, I lived for a time on the White Mountain Apache Reservation in, in Arizona. And I didn't get a sense of the language there because I was there a short time only. And then my parents found work at the day school at Jemez Pueblo in north central New Mexico. Again, canyon country, beautiful country. That's where I had the horse. Um, <clears throat> and they lived there, uh, we lived there. Uh, my parents were there for 25 years as the teachers at the two-teacher day school at Jemez Pueblo. I was there a part of that time, and I, I went to school there, um, and then I ran out of school because it went only through the eighth grade. And then I had to go away to Santa Fe to uh, live there and go to a public school. And uh, then I went to four different high schools. Um, so I had a, you know, spotted kind of experience, but always within easy reach of Indian country. And so I grew up uh, in, in uh, several, among several different tribes. And I think of that as being a, a, a fortunate and uh, valuable kind of experience for me. I got to know not only my tribe, but I got to know something about uh, other tribes and the Indian situation in general. And uh, you know, the Indian culture is extremely diversified. There are maybe a hundred different tribes in the country, maybe more than that. A great number of languages, different languages, all uh, mutually unintelligible. So you're dealing with a, a vast uh, complication of things when you talk about the American Indian. It's hard to identify one Indian tribe or one Indian person. Um, the problems on one reservation are very different from the problems on another reservation. And uh, anyway, I uh, went to, to the University of New Mexico as an undergraduate and I graduated uh, with a teaching credential, and I took a job on the Hickorya Apache Reservation as a teacher of seven through 12 grades. And at the time, New Mexico had just uh, started a program in teaching oral English to Indian students. And because I had been uh, active as a debater and an orator in college, I got to to choose among five schools, and I picked Dulce, New Mexico, the seat of the Hickorya tribe, and I was there for a year. And during that year, interesting thing happened. I had a friend who was in college with me at the university. He had gone to Florida to become a pilot. He had entered the Naval Cadet Program at Pensacola, and uh, we wrote back and forth to each other. And one day, he sent me a flyer announcing the Stanford Creative Writing Fellowships. And he said, I'm going to apply for this. I'll get it, of course. And I'm going to, I'm going to spend a year at Stanford's expense uh, learning a little bit about writing and showing everybody else how to write. <laughs> and, uh, so I took advantage of that situation, and I applied myself for the fellowship, and I got it. And so I went off to Stanford, uh, thinking of myself as a poet, 
but as I said last night, I didn't know the difference between a, an I am and a spondee, but I learned. I learned a lot about traditional English forms of poetry at Stanford. I had a, a wonderful teacher and advisor, Ivor Winters, who was himself a, a considerable poet and critic. And he, he did me the great honor of believing in me. And that is something that uh, one cannot describe. It's, it's such a wonderful gift, you know, because you want to believe in yourself, and you can do that. But when someone else believes in you, it's, you know, it's really more powerful and wonderful. He believed in me, and so I tried to live up to him. And that was a great incentive for me, and a great satisfaction uh, to to uh, have written something of which he approved. I wrote a poem called The Bear, which I recited last night, and it was my first real triumph at Stanford. And he said to me, after he had read the poem, so he said, I wish I had written that. <laughs> and that meant everything to me. <laughs> ah, that was the greatest compliment that I could possibly imagine. And I took my master's degree in the first year at Stanford, and then I stayed on and took the PhD. My first teaching post was at the University of California at Santa Barbara, which is not a bad place to, <laughs> to you know, end up. And uh, so I spent some years there, and then uh, I was offered a post at Berkeley in comparative literature, uh, which is kind of you know, I've, my life has been touched with lucky things, fortunate things, chance. And uh, I had no business being in a department of comparative literature because I didn't, you know, most of the people, uh, most of my uh, colleagues there were, they were conversant in different languages, right? Everybody was in the English department, but also in the comparative literature department because he was an expert in Italian literature or Spanish literature or French literature. So I knew something about Navajo. <laughs> and on that ticket, I got into the comparative <laughs> literature. Uh, it was like, uh, it was like a, um, you know, a credit card, an academic credit card. I knew a little Navajo. I could say, <laughs> and, so, and so I spent, um, I spent some time there among uh, very, I think at that time, Berkeley must have been one of the great universities in the world. There was such a faculty you can't imagine. And then it all came down. Um, Ronald Reagan became governor of California, and he was not a friend of the university. And so there were a lot of defections, and uh, it was an interesting time. And of course, I was there during the free speech movement, and uh, I was tear-gassed on the Berkeley campus. And uh, those, were, those were the days. Uh, <laughs> And then I went back to Stanford on the faculty for 10 years. And uh, that was a good time in my life. I wrote a lot of poems and, and so on. And I moved from there to uh, the University of Arizona, where I ended my career. I retired from U of A. But that was a good time, too. And um, in, in, in between these, these uh, dates, you know, starting at Santa Barbara and ending at Arizona, I traveled a, lot, a great deal. I taught, for example, at uh, the University of Moscow in Russia. I was there for uh, six months. Uh, 
and that I was behind the Iron Curtain. This was 1974. What an interesting time that was, and fraught with danger and uh, intrigue and so on. You know, I, I, everybody in the American Embassy in Moscow in those days believed that his car, his house, his office were bugged. And when I went there, I thought, that's kind of silly, isn't it? You know, that's, these people are paranoid. Uh, of course, we're not worthy of being watched all the time, suspected of uh, infiltration and being spies and so on. But I came to understand that they were right in my <laughs> stay there. I was very naive. <clears throat> I had a student who was my stagiaire, who was my uh, guide. She, was, she, she worked as a guide uh, to show foreign people how to get around in Moscow and point out the sights and so on. And she took me uh, aside and, and uh, told me all about Moscow and the Soviet Union and such things. And at the end of my stay, I was still uh, incredulous. I still thought of my colleagues as being paranoid. And she invited me to lunch in her parents' flat and... Uh, she had prepared a lovely table and so on. And we were talking, and I was telling her about my colleagues at the embassy, and I, I said to her, you know, they're so paranoid. They think, they think someone probably watched me come into your flat here. And that's funny, isn't it? <laughs> she didn't laugh. <laughs> and then she said, well, I suppose you were observed coming here. <gasps> you think? Oh, yes. Well, I don't want to get you in trouble. I did, you know. Oh, she said, don't, don't worry about that. Somebody probably wrote your name or the fact that you came to visit on such and such a date, and it becomes a part of a record of some kind. And I will pay for it somehow. Perhaps when I want to travel, I will be denied a visa. That's, you know, and I thought, oh my, I did this to you? It's a terrible thing. But uh, then I, ca I finally came to understand that uh, it was a strange world, you know, there behind the Iron Curtain. Even stranger than the one we live in today, right? <laughs> oh. um, so I had a very wonderful and interesting time. Russia was not comfortable, but it was fascinating. And I had read the Russian novels, you know, those traditional things like Dostoevsky and Tolstoy and so on. So I, uh, and, and my students there were brilliant students. They were all graduate students and they all spoke English and they were working on English uh, theses. So uh, I was a curiosity to them because I was not only an American, but I was an Indian. And so they had a lot of questions to ask. I could, I was, they were as much interested in me as I was in them, I think. And it was a great uh, experience. Am I nearly out of time here? <laughs> All right. It has been a joy talking to you. Thank you so much. Today we are listening to a forum with N. Scott Mamaday, recipient of the 2018 Annisfield Wolf Book Award for Lifetime Achievement. We're about to begin the audience Q&A. May we please have the first question? Welcome. I just wanted to know, as a Native American, what do you think of what's happening now in terms of the immigration crisis? Well, that's a question that, of course, I've thought about because it's been so much in the news. 
And I deplore the fact that uh, children are separated from their parents. That aspect of the immigration question now is one that troubles me and tr troubles you, troubles everyone, I think. Uh, it, it happened. It continues to be a, a problem. And uh, I, you know, I grew up firmly believing in, in uh, the, the words that are on the Statue of Liberty. Um, and I still think immigration is a, is a great uh, thing for the American people, has been historically. It certainly is a problem in other parts of the world, uh, more, uh, a greater severity to the problem in various other parts of the world. Um, as, a, as a Native American, of course, I, I uh, have a certain view of, of immigration. Uh, I, I am relieved of that uh, problem in some ways because I have been here for 30,000 years. But uh, I, I was once in an elevator in San Francisco, and there was only the only other person in the elevator was a little old lady. And she looked pleasant enough. But as we were ascending to the sixth floor, you know, ladies' lingeries, she said to me, why don't you go back where you came from? And I, then I wrote a poem later about on the stair. The, the, the French have, a, have a, uh, an idiom, and I've forgotten how it goes, but it, it says you are standing on the stair recollecting what you might have said to someone when the opportunity was there. And then it passes, and, and you just, you know, you, you regret that you hadn't the mind to say, say what uh, you might have said. I might have said to her, why don't you go back where you came from? I've been here for 30,000 years, you know. So that's, uh, there, that's the answer to that. Mamaday, it's um, 30, 35 years since my high school English students encountered your work through one of those collections of um, uh, uh, various literature that you teach in a, like an anthology in a, in a high school class. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious, in your case as a writer and as a teacher, if you have a view on the anthologizing of writers and the use of those kinds of uh, uh, books in schools. Oh, I, I approve of them. I think, uh, goodness, there are so many of those things. and. Um, they're, they're good in, in, the, in the sense that they give the student a, a range of, uh, of uh, understanding of literature. You know, I remember having and working with anthologists when I was a student. And uh, you could read Faulkner and uh, Hemingway and so on in, in uh, bits and pieces. And that's all good. That's to the good. That's a good experience. So I approve of those anthologies. I'm in a number of them. And in more than I know, I keep being, you know, I keep hearing that, ah, yeah, I, could, I, I read some of your work in such and such a book, and I didn't know it was there, but I'm pleased to find out. I'm leading the effort to save Quanah Parker's star home in Cache, Oklahoma. Two questions. Can you tell us a little bit the difference between the Comanche and the Kiowa? And then am I doing the right thing to save the home? You're definitely doing the right thing to save the home. The, the Comanche and the Kiowa were, were close allies, though not linguistically related. But they both uh, held sway in the same territory. 
and they were both dominant uh, uh, you know, warrior societies. And they got along uh, well, formed a very fortunate alliance because had they not been friends, they probably would have destroyed each other. And uh, you want to hear a story about Kwana Parker? Um, my grandfather used to go to Kwana Parker's house for peyote ceremonies. And so I feel a relationship to Kwana Parker. Um, he, when he retired, when he got to be of a certain age, he became an, an arbitrator. People, other tribes would, hi, would uh, hire him, I guess is the right word, to come and solve their problems. They had family disputes and things like that, and he was versed in settling such things. So he would travel here and there and work out problems for people. And he went up north to the northern plains on one occasion and he ended some dispute and he was paid with a wife. He had five wives already and in the star house there were rooms for each wife. No more. So when he was given the sixth wife, he didn't know what to do with her. He brought her back home there was no room in the house, so he built a little teepee outside on the lawn and put her there. And his five wives, uh, former wives, uh, not former, but, you know, the other five, um, <laughs> resented the sixth one very much, so they made her life uncomfortable. And one day he walked out on the yard and she was gone. To everyone's relief. So I, I know that about Quanah Park. Now you know that. <laughs> but I applaud your work. Thank you for that. Dr. Mamaday, my name is Bruce Kafer. I'm a member of the Oglala Sioux Tribe. And I'm a doctoral student at Case Western Reserve University. And it was individuals like yourself who inspired me to seek further education. And I'm curious, who, what native authors and individuals inspired you to, to seek further academia? Well, there are not many, or I didn't come in contact with many Indian writers as I was growing up, but I knew stories. And uh, the oral tradition of the Native American is very rich. That's one thing I should say to you on this occasion because it's very important and not enough people understand the value of the oral tradition. You know, we don't have written Indian languages. We have orthographies. My friend Lucy Tapahanso, for example, writes in English and in Navajo, but she does it in a certain way. You know, there is no written Navajo, but she has invented a way of doing it with the help of an orthography. Um, so uh, the, the, the oral tradition is very strong, though it is also very fragile. It is always just one generation removed from extinction. So it is very important in the oral tradition to speak carefully. You know, you don't waste words. You don't tell lies. You deal in language in a very respectful and uh, efficient way. You listen carefully because if it doesn't come across to you, it's lost. And you remember what you hear. Those three things, speaking, listening, remembering, those are the, the great uh, hallmarks of the oral tradition. And it survives, you know. These, these, it's alive and well. 
and so it cannot be underestimated. I'm delighted that you are doing what you're doing, and I'm very proud to have been influential in, uh, in your career. Um, I, I tell more and more young Indian people, you know, be literate, learn to read and write, but hold on to your, your traditional literature, if you may call it that, your traditional uh, way of, of dealing with language. Language is so important. You know, um, we talk about the difference between science and the humanities today. That's a big split. Uh, but they're, they're, they're dependent upon each other. The pendulum swings in the direction of science these days, and we think, ah, we can solve all the world's problems with science, mathematics, which is a language after all. But even the scientists have to converse with the rest of us in language. We cannot underestimate the importance and the power and beauty of language. This is my field, you know, poetry. Um, we overuse the term communication. I prefer the word expression. I'm interested in the expression of language. So keep doing what you're doing. Can you talk about your poetry? What can you say with uh, poetry that you can't in your other forms? My poetry is based upon traditional forms of English poetry, which I learned at Stanford. And uh, it has been extremely useful to me. But I also incorporate in my, in my uh, poetry elements of native oral tradition. So I'm very much aware of native songs spells, uh, incantations, chants, and so on. And I, I managed to uh, work with both traditions uh, easily. And uh, that's, that's a, uh, in a nutshell, a description of my poetry. But uh, let me give you an example of uh, a nearly perfect poem. Uh, because I've written one. I once heard uh, the late J.V. Cunningham give a reading at Stanford, and he said, in introducing a certain poem, this is a nearly perfect poem. And I thought, well, you can't say that, you know, about your own poem. And then I wrote a poem. <laughs> and it's called Death. And it goes like this. What presence in the trees does not appear? For nothing in the trees engenders fear. What vagrant presence in the trees draws near? Ooh, that's a, <laughs> there's a nearly perfect poem. And I, I say that because it's iambic pentameter. It's an example, a prime example of iambic pentameter. It's got exact rhyme and it has the word nothing in it. That is the key word. Nothing in the trees engenders fear. Of course nothing engenders fear. You know, it's a play on words. It's a brilliant play on words. <laughs> so th there's my poetry. What would be your oral tradition story of how you happened to come here 30,000 years ago? 
Um, yes, yes. We were living on the steps about that time. And uh, uh, last night I told a little story about the Mongolian soldier. I don't know how many of you heard that. But I, I was on a train in Siberia and stopped in, as we entered Mongolia one night, I was awakened by the stopping of the train. And a soldier came into my compartment and I handed him the papers of entry that I had filled out in advance. And as I looked at him, I, uh, a strange thought came into my mind. I know this man, and I have been here before, 30,000 years ago. I had returned to a place of origin. So 30,000 years ago, you know, there, there I was on the steps of Central Asia, and uh, I began walking. And finally, I came to ice. I had a dog pulling a travoy with my goods on it, furs to keep me warm and so on, food. But I hunted a lot, too, because crossing the bridge, the Bering Strait Bridge, I uh, was able to hunt mammoth and uh, had a lot to eat, actually. And the dogs were my friends. And uh, we crossed. And it was cold. God, it was cold. I once told that to a student uh, in class of what I was teaching, and I got a paper, term paper. Dr. Mamaday remembers crossing the Bering Bridge. <laughs> it was cold. God, it was cold. <laughs> gave that student an A, of course. <laughs> so that's what I remember of my migration. Any other questions? So, I'm, I'm curious about this, your expression of your own reincarnation. And last night, you also spoke about being the reincarnation of a bear. Um, and in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition as well, there is, I, I once spoke to, um, spoke to somebody who, who was talking about their teacher who said he'd, he was the 17th Karmapa. The, the, and he was an 18-year-old young man who had been reincarnated 17 times and was the head of the lineage of one of the lineages in Tibetan Buddhism. And I don't, I can't tell how serious you are about being the reincarnation of somebody 30,000 years ago, but I'm taking you at your word that you, on some level, believe this and know it to be true. And I'm wondering, how do you know? How do you experience it? How do you, can you talk more about that belief? There's a place called Devil's Tower, Wyoming, in Kiowa, it's a, it's a sacred place to the Kiowas because they camped in the Black Hills on, their, on, the, on the course of their migration to the Southern Plains. <clears throat> I, some of you have been to Devil's Tower. Others of you have seen pictures of it or close encounters of the third kind. Um, it, is, it has to be seen to be believed. It's a monolith that rises a thousand feet from base to summit, and it resembles the stump of a tree. And... Um, when the Kiowas were there, they, they uh, had to account for this strange thing in nature uh, because if, if they hadn't accounted for it, they would have repudiated their humanity, their imagination. So they told a story about it. They say that uh, eight children were playing in the woods, eight Kiowa children, seven sisters and their brother. The boy was pretending to be a bear and he was chasing his sisters through the woods and in the course of this game, he turned into a bear. 
a terrible thing happened. And when the girls saw this, they were terrified. They ran for their lives, the bear after them. And they came to a huge tree stump. And the tree spoke to them and said, if you will climb on me, climb upon me, I will save you. So the little girls scampered on top of the stump. And as they did so, it began to rise into the air. And the bear came to kill them, but they were beyond its reach. And the story ends, the seven sisters were born into the sky. They became the stars of the Big Dipper. And uh, so I have relatives in the night sky. That's important to me because this is a bridge between, you know, mortality and immortality. And um, the boy, we don't, we don't know anything about him except that he turned into a bear. But I am the reincarnation of that boy. I believe that because I remember that in my, in my uh, racial memory. I know about that place and I know about that event and I know about the bear and I feel the bear's breath inside of me. And as I said last night, on occasion I turn into a bear. And then I, then I said, you know, if it happens tonight, bear with me. Uh, I'm, I'm, I keep apologizing for that, I'm so, but I can't help it. And uh, so I do, I do to take your, your question seriously, I do, I do believe that, uh, that I am a bear, that I have bear blood in me, that I have a, something of a bear's mind and intuition, intelligence, and imagination. I believe that firmly. Does that answer your question? Yes. Okay. I'm interested in what you had to say, though, about the, you know, the, yeah. It's a pleasure to, and an honor to hear you speak, Dr. Mamaday. I am Kimberly Medicine Horn Jackson from the Yankton people and an emerging Native poet. And you were the first Native American poet that I had ever read, and that was such a light in a pathway through darkness. I'm interested in hearing what you think are the most important changes you've seen in Native American writing. I'm sorry, the most important? The most important changes that you've seen in your career in Native American writing. I see um, what, what has been called the Native American Renaissance. I, I, a number of people when I published Housemaid of Dawn, um, D. Brown published, um, what was the name of his book? Uh, yes. Those, those two books were very influential, I think, in terms of, of uh, inspiring Native Americans to write. First of all, D. Brown brought attention to the to a crucial period in the history of white Indian relations, 30-year period, a 30-year period in which the Indian lost almost everything, lost his economy, lost his religion, lost his freedom. And Housemaid of Dawn came along and it was uh, given a prize, an important prize, so it called further attention to the Native American. And those two books did bring about um, what we, what we can call the uh, Native American Renaissance in literature. And so the changes have been that uh, more and more young people are writing, such as yourself. Um, 
and that's a very good thing. That's, that's a kind of vitality that we need to, to acknowledge and to nourish. And uh, that's coming out. I know, I know a number of young Indian writers who are very, very able writers, capable writers, imaginative writers, successful writers. And we're seeing more and more of them all the time. And that will continue, of course. Uh, the, the, the language barrier has been a formidable barrier. And, uh, you know, that's being overcome. More and more young people are taking, are, are mastering the English language. And that's, that's necessary to a literary career. Um, they want to be read. And they're able now to find a readership. You know, the great Danish writer Isaac Dinesen, who wrote out of Africa, wrote in English uh, because she wanted to be read. There wasn't enough of an audience in Danish. So it, that's something like the case that uh, we have with uh, Native Americans. They have no written languages, so they cannot, and, and many of them are born into a native language and they speak that language at home and they, they uh, they, they make the transition from English to, or from a native language to English at a later time in their lives, high school maybe, or junior high, or, you know, sixth grade or something like that. Now that barrier is falling down so that more and more young people take hold of the English language at an earlier age, and that's crucial. So, I don't know if I answered your question, but that's what occurs to me. Raquel Redhouse in a I'm Navo and I come from the Shiprock area. Um, I moved here um, from there, from New Mexico, 15 years ago. Your name, along with um, Ms. Tapa Hansel, were common in my household as my mother was an English instructor at the San Juan College in Farmington, New Mexico. Her name is Nancy Redhouse, and I am here basically on, um, for her. Um, like I said, I, I, I'm happy to have met you, and um, congratulations on your lifetime achievement. I wanted to know what you considered your uh, greatest achievements up to now, and what do you still aspire to achieve in the future? My greatest achievement has been fathering four daughters. And, uh, you know, otherwise, I, my greatest achievement has been uh, publishing, uh, becoming a published writer, becoming a professional writer. That has been my, the thing I would point to as, as uh, my contribution to, to the world. And it's, I'm so proud of it, you know, and I, I take great uh, gratification from it. Today at the City Club, we are listening to a forum with N. Scott Mamaday, recipient of the 2018 Anisfield Wolf Book Award for Lifetime Achievement. Community partners for today's forum include Cleveland Book Week, the Floristone Mather Center for Women, the Lake Erie Native American Council, and the Social Justice Institute at Case Western Reserve University. We thank you for your support in promoting today's forum. We welcome guests at tables hosted by the Cleveland Foundation, 
We also welcome students from St. Martin de Porres High School. Student participation in City Clubs forums is provided by many foundations, including the William M. M. Weiss Foundation. We thank all of you for being here today. And that brings us to the end of today's forum. Thank you, Mr. Mamaday, and thank you, ladies and gentlemen. This forum is now adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.